This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I don't know that I perfectly walked. I was in a very male-dominated environment. The military writ large is about 17% female, but the officer corps in the Marine Corps is about 7% female. And I know I'm the only woman in the room every time I walk in the room, and I know that there are no women in the room before I walk in the room. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Women make up less than 17% of the active duty military. That's according to a 2020 Government Accountability Office study. And that study says women who are serving are 28% more likely to leave the service than men. As the U.S. marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and two decades of war, the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is turning a spotlight on women in the military and featuring conversations about leadership, air, space, and cyber issues, as well as intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. This episode focuses on what it takes to thrive and belong as a service member today and the issues that can sometimes make that difficult. I spoke with retired Air Force Colonel Mo Barrett, Marine Reservist Lindsey Rodman, and retired Navy Commander Amanda Stahlschmidt. This podcast was recorded before the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Mo, Lindsey, and Amanda, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Thanks. Happy to be here. Let's first talk about the jobs you did in the military when you served. Mo and Amanda, you were both aviators. So I'm going to start with each of you and ask you what drew you into the military. Amanda, you want to go first? Sure. For me, it was simply a means to pay for college. When I was a senior in high school, my my parents said, you know, you get good grades and we can't afford to, to pay for your college. So you you know, maybe we can help you out, but you really need to find a way to pay for it. So near where I grew up, there was a Navy base and somehow I saw a flyer for Navy ROTC scholarship. And I thought, I don't know that I am Navy material, but hey, maybe I'll just, I'll try for the scholarship and and we'll see. And if I don't get it, then obviously I'm not. But if I do, then it might work out. So while both my grandfathers served in the Navy, it wasn't really a, a thing in my family. It just, I needed to pay for college and I, and I saw the opportunity with the scholarship. So a little bit similar to that, my dad and my brother were both in the Air Force. My dad was actually in the Army Air Corps during World War II. So I knew that I was gonna follow their footsteps into military service. During high school one day, I was cutting class and a teacher came around the corner. So I ducked into the career center and they were getting ready to show a video about the Naval Academy. Fortunately, no offense, Amanda, fortunately, the tape didn't uh, work. And so they popped in another school that was just like it, which was the Air Force Academy. And I watched that video and I'm like, yep, that's what I want. So I ran down to my guidance counselor's office and I told him I was gonna apply to the Air Force Academy and he laughed at me. And he basically said I wasn't good enough, wasn't smart enough, my grades weren't high enough, and that I should set my sights on community college. So my short answer to your question is what drew me to military service is family service and the power of no. The power of no. Huh. (laughs) Yeah, wait, sorry. N-O, not K-N-O-W. Oh, (laughs) got it, got it. (laughs) 
I thought about that for, for a moment there. Lindsay, you were in the Marines. You're a judge advocate in the Marines. What drew you to the military? So my story is actually quite different. I joined about 10 years later than Mo and Amanda. I was in graduate school in my mid-20s, and I was really attracted to having a career in the national security field. But there were two things that really drew me into the military and the Marine Corps in particular. One was that I was mindful that the national security field is still quite male-dominated, and I wanted to have impeccable credentials. I wanted to know that I knew exactly what I was talking about and to have that confidence when I walked in the room because I feared that there might be some who doubted that I belonged there. And I figured there would be no better way (laughs) than to come in as a Marine in a Marine Corps uniform, or at least with that in my background, because that seemed to be a group that no one seemed to mess with in terms of their national security credentials. And they were also perceived to be, you know, and we Marines certainly perceive themselves to be elitist and the best of the best. And I always have challenged myself to try and strive for those kinds of credentials. And the other thing was that I was still in my mid-20s and most of my peers in law school were headed to law firms. And I knew that sitting at a desk at a law firm was not going to be a good fit for me. While I still had an interest in running around the world, gaining new experiences, being exposed to new and interesting challenges. And I had always been an athlete and really enjoyed the idea that my job could have a physicality component to it. And Marine Corps offered me that. And you mentioned belonging, and I want to get to that point because that's the theme of this entire podcast is women belonging and thriving in the military. But before I do that, I want to uh, ask you guys a, a couple of questions about your experiences. And Mo, you launched your career after I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, being the first member of your pilot training class to receive a grade of unsatisfactory. I have to ask what happened? What lesson did you learn? And how did you keep going? Yeah, so that is true. I became the first and also the distinguished member of the second person in my pilot training class to receive the grade of unsatisfactory. So I really like to shine early on. The problem was that I basically landed too hard. And so I had a pretty long list of instructors who would not fly with me because I'd either uh, bruised them from my landings or they had heard about other people who'd been bruised by me and my landings. So, you know, I learned a lot from that. And the biggest thing is that it's how to fail successfully and it's not giving up. And so I equate things to an internal combustion engine. So you have the intake, the compression, the combustion and the exhaust, which is crudely short term called suck, squeeze, bang, blow. And you're taking all these inputs, filtering it through your experiences. You have that power stroke, that combustion chamber of action. But that last part is the exhaust. And that's what actually propels the aircraft forward. And that exhaust in the way I look at it in decision making is A lot of us just kind of focus on the bang and we don't look at what we can learn from that and that feedback that we can get from that experience, good or bad. So when I failed my landings, I had to use the exhaust part of it, the the blow part, as an input for my next round, for my next flight and figuring out what did I do right, what did I do wrong, and how do I fix it? And then talk to other people and their experiences and filter it through their experiences and their techniques. So I really learned how to fail successfully and not give up and just keep going through that iterative process. But the bigger takeaway that is kind of stuck with me through all that is what we do in that moment of action and what we say and how we say it and all those things, that's not the end of the process because there is that cyclical loop. So it's just kind of giving yourself, you know, we call it hot wash or after action reports, but it's looking at what you do in that moment of action and how you can do it better or repeat it or improve it the next time around. 
That's absolutely fascinating and brilliant advice that can be applied in any activity that you do. Lindsay, you're currently a reservist. Amanda, you were a reservist in the Navy for 10 years after being active duty for 10 years. I want to ask you guys, what made you choose to stay in the reserves after your active duty service ended? Lindsay, why don't you go first? Sure. I was actually pretty devastated to get off of active duty. And the reason that I did get off of active duty was because I was getting married. And I know the military has actually started doing some exit interviews and trying to better understand women and retention. And it's funny because I had reflected back to me that I quit for, quote, family reasons from some other uh, Marine Corps officers who I still serve with because I am still a reservist. And I said, well, the reason I don't, I don't like that because it's so gendered, right? People say, oh, you quit for family reasons, implying that I wanted to no longer have a career or get married and have children. And that wasn't what it was. What it was was that I had a partner who has a career and wanted to sustain his own career. He's an engineer. He's very successful and loves his job and wasn't able to figure out how to keep that career going with me staying in the military. And so we really quit for the same reason. He was actually in military as well. And we both had to quit because each of us had careers that we wanted to be able to sustain. And the military service is not often compatible with that. The few people who I've known who've had spouses who've been able to maintain their careers have very unique careers where they've been able to accommodate military service, but the vast majority of folks aren't able to do that. And so it was pretty devastating because I love being a Marine. I I absolutely did feel like I had a sense of belonging in my military service, and it was not something that I was looking to leave. And the reserves afforded me an opportunity to stick with it, which was really phenomenal. And I have really enjoyed being in the reserves because I've been able to continue my military service, but also achieve other things that were really important to me, like having a family and being able to pursue other career options on the civilian side. And Amanda, you are now a first grade teacher, as I understand it. But as I mentioned, you were a reservist for 10 years after your 10 years of active duty. Yes, absolutely. And my story is actually quite similar to Lindsay's. I really enjoyed being in the Navy. And my husband, who's also prior active duty, uh, we decided together to get out or off of active duty at the same time. Prior to getting married, we you know, were together for five years and we always tell people we were probably at the sa- in the same place at the same time for about 18 months of those five years because of our deployment schedules or training schedules, training and all sorts of things that, you know, while we were able to maintain that relationship, we, we really were only able to see each other for 18 months. And when we got to this point, it was and we were going to get married, we said, you know, we don't want our, our marriage to be a continuation of that. And it was hard for us to choose, well, who should stay in, whose career is more important. And together, we decided that um, we would both leave active duty. And so then my husband, he went back to school, got his MBA from Virginia, and then started in finance. And I went back to school while we were both on active duty and, you know, got my master's in education. Teaching was something prior to even thinking about the military, I always wanted to do. And I knew whether 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, it was something I was going to come back to after the military. For my husband, his job really didn't allow the flexibility to be able to also do the reserves. But as a teacher... You know, I have the summers or Christmas break or spring break where I can go and serve active duty during those times. And so, again, we both really enjoyed 
being in the Navy and for me being able to continue that through the reserves, I, w- I was really grateful for that opportunity. What I'm hearing here, all of you sound like you felt like you perfectly belonged in the military and you all thrived in the military. There's a GAO study from 2020 that found that women were 28% more likely to leave the military before retirement than men, which indicates the military has a women retention problem. Tell me your thoughts on how the military can make it easier for women to have a career and, and a family. Talk to me about feeling like you belonged in the military. Amanda, I'll start with you. The way the military promotes, you need to stay in these jobs that are, you know, are considered like hard duty jobs, at least in my experience and and being in Navy aviation. And for my friends that were able to husband and wife stay on active duty, my female friends, one went back to school, transferred to the nursing corps, one went to HR. They couldn't both stay in these high demand jobs and have a family. Um, And if you try to take a break or take a job that's going to let you stay home with your children for a little while, that's going to hurt your promotion. And no one really wants to sacrifice that. You worked so hard. So it's hard to have a family and devote the time to family, I feel, and devote the time needed to these you know, jobs in the Navy that require you to, to, to travel and, you know, spend long hours. And in aviation, you could have flights at night and coordinating schedules. It's, it's just, it's just difficult. I'm not sure how the Navy could, could help unless something changed with more significant with the way they promote people and people don't take a hit for taking a job so that they can better support their family. Mm-hmm. Mo. So as far as why it's that way, I don't know. I do know that without without having women in leadership roles, some of the younger women may not see it as a possibility. So it helps for younger ladies to see someone like them in a typically non-traditional role. Having said that, there are a lot of people who successfully balanced, you know, motherhood or spousehood and a career. And there's people who have sacrificed. But I also know a lot of dual military people where it's the husband or the man who stays home. He's the Mr. Mom. He takes care of things at home. And it's the woman who still, you know, I've got a couple of friends like that who are one and two star generals now, and their husband is the one who stays home. So as to why the other 20% are more likely to get out, I actually don't know. And again, without exit surveys, which I think is always a good suggestion. The bigger issue to me is for younger women who want that have to be able to see themselves in those roles. If they want to be a mother and a colonel or a general, there are people that do it. It's a matter of finding those people. And it's also those people in those roles doing those things and being successful at both. We need to see more of them. We need to hear from them, not just to see how they did it or or what their secret is, but we just need to see that it's possible because there are people doing it. We just need to see more of that. Lindsay? I'll jump off of that point right away and say that, and just speaking from my own personal, very anecdotal experience in the Marine Corps, Part of why I got out was because I didn't see it. And what I didn't see specifically was not women in leadership positions, but there was not a single, in my time in the Marine Corps, it's now been 14 years, I have not seen a single woman make general officer who was not either single or married to someone in the military, right? Marine Corps or Navy. And when I decided to marry my husband, 
he was actually in the Royal Canadian Air Force. So it's dual military, but with a big asterisk next to it. And I liken that to marrying a civilian. So I was deciding to partner with someone who was outside of the military, which meant that the military was going to have to care about what my civilian spouse does, not dual moves or anything like that, which the military sometimes can help with, although you know their track record is not the greatest on that. I think there there is some precedent for that. I literally don't know, and I know that they exist because I've heard stories, but I don't have any personal interaction or a great anecdote to tell you about a woman who has had a civilian partner and who's been able to rise through the ranks and have a longer term military career. I didn't I didn't get to see that in my time in the Marine Corps. Um, certainly not at the flag level, uh, maybe onesie twosie at the 06 level, but not in any sort of critical mass where you feel like, oh, this this is a thing. This is normal. I can do it. Anyone can do it. And that was really hard. Another thing that I want to touch on, Beverly, I appreciate you saying that we perfectly belonged. And I, I don't know that I perfectly belonged. I was in a very male-dominated environment. The military writ large is about 17% female, but the officer corps in the Marine Corps is about 7% female. And I know I'm the only woman in the room every time I walk in the room, and I know that there are no women in the room before I walk in the room. And I know that they notice that too. And as much as I have wonderful friends from the Marine Corps and men who have been exceptional, there have also been people who I've encountered who are frankly sexist, right? I, I, have, I have no qualms about using that word to describe a very small minority, but a significant minority that creates an environment where I fear that that kind of behavior is condoned. And that can be really hard for women. And when they encounter a more hostile environment earlier in their career, or they see that they, they belong, but they don't belong quite as well as their male peers, and they fear they might never. And frankly, I still fear I might never. You know, I mean, I think it's a real gut check when you're mid-career and you're trying to figure out if you're going to stay in the military for the long term or whether you might want to go to another industry or another environment that might fully include you in a way that the military might not be able to do. That brings me to the stat that women make up about 16.5% of the active duty military. Lindsay, the things you just raised, do you think that that's why that number is pretty low, given that women are 50% of the population, or actually I think a little over 50% of the total population in the U.S.? I think there's a couple things at play. One is that from a very young age, and there's a nature versus nurture question about this, and I don't want to get into that because I really have no expertise in any of it. But the military uses the word propensity, right? So teenagers and people are in that core age that folks come into the military, younger than I was when I came into the military, whether they have a propensity to serve. And you know, I think everyone knows by observing little kids that many girls are not attracted as much to military-type things, and many boys are attracted to more military-type things. I don't love gender essentialism, and I think, you know, anyone can be attracted to anything. But it is true that, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to look at our general populace and not say, of course, men are going to be slightly more propensed to serve than women are. So you may never get to 50-50, and that's okay. The question is really about equal effort by the military and inclusion for the women who want to serve. And I don't see a strong commitment from the military to raise that number. Um, it's been about between 14 and 17% for about 20 years now. There hasn't been a significant rise in women's participation in the military. And at least from the Marine Corps experience for the longest time, they said that they didn't have capacity to bring more women through entry pipeline training, right? So there was, they would actually, I had to wait over a year to go to officer candidate school. I actually went to a law firm before I went to officer candidate school because the pipeline was so long. And some of that had to do with how many women they could take through the pipeline. 
So if they're not building the infrastructure to go out, recruit, encourage women to come in, and there isn't a goal of increasing that number, then you're not going to have people focused on getting that number to increase. Lindsay raised the issue of inclusiveness. Mo, talk about the effort that is being made, or if it, it t- you tell me if it's being made to make the environment for women and other underrepresented groups be more inclusive in the military. I'm about three years out from retirement, so I don't know. There was a lot of stuff going on um, at the time that I left with the transgender population, so there was a lot of things. And one of the positives I see going on with the military is the military is making these efforts with all these, you know, tiger teams and all these different groups. They're asking the questions and they're doing their best to be more inclusive. But at the end of the day, the one thing we have to remember is that our job is different than corporate Americas or things like that. And we ask things of our employees, if you will, that are different from just a corporate America. And and I definitely want to jump onto Lindsay's point is that whole propensity to serve because we may never get to 50-50 because there's not 50% of the female population that or 50% of the population that may want to serve. And so it's not that we don't want those people. We don't appreciate their service. But if somebody doesn't like what they're doing, that's probably not a good fit for anybody, them, the organization, the country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the best thing that I see happening is that people are asking the questions people are trying to understand. And and that's, you know, inclusion starts with understanding first. And so asking the right questions, asking the right people. And again, to Lindsay's point, making sure that there is someone from that group in the room who can not represent and say and speak for everybody in that group, but at least bring that back to maybe a, a group that you're affiliated with that you can kind of be the spokesman for or the mouthpiece for, but just seeking to understand is that first step toward inclusion. And I see a lot of that going on. And, you know, in the midst of doing everything else that's going on in the world, that's not a light task to do. Mm -hmm. Before I move on, Amanda, anything to add on this point? Well, I would just like to say, you know, when we talk about, you know, bringing women in, I was someone that never saw myself in the military and really didn't think that, you know, one, I I was going to last in ROTC and then I made it into the military, and then I was like deciding, hmm, do I wanna go out on ships for four years and then just be done, or do I wanna go into aviation for eight years? Well, aviation sounded really exciting, but it was an eight-year commitment, and I still wasn't sure that the Navy was for me. And I met a woman who was an aviator, and she told me, you know, don't be afraid of the eight years. It's gonna be the best eight years of your life. Go for it, just do it. And, and I think that's what we need. How many recruiters are women? I have never met a female recruiter. We need more women to go out and talk to other women and, and say, you know what, you can do this. It might seem like it's not for you, but give it a try and here's my experience. And I loved it, it was awesome. You know, I, I just think we, we need more women who are out there, the face of the military saying to other women, don't be afraid of this. Like you really can do it and, and it's gonna be great. Not every part of it is great, but, but you, like you've heard from all of us, we have loved and enjoyed our military experience. So I think that's the biggest thing. And putting more women at the top so that other women wanna stay in and follow their shoes, having examples, having female mentors. I had mentors, they were all male. You know, We need more women in leadership roles in the military for sure. Let me turn to a bit of a more difficult question for the military, and that's the issue of sexual assault in the military. There was a recent New York Times report that said 
as many as one in four service women have reported being sexually assaulted. Is this a culture issue the military has to face in order to get more women in the door and have the people at the top that have had good experiences? Do you have to deal with this type of cultural issue first? Who would like to tackle that question first? I was just going to say crickets, crickets. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough question. It is. I'll give it a shot. I don't want to create a false choice, right? Like we absolutely urgently need to deal with the problem of sexual assault in the military, but I'm not going to create any kind of priority order for these things because they all should be very high priorities. And I think we can also be looking at lifting up women in the military and recruiting more women into the military while we also fix this problem. I would say that, you know, the sexual assault in the military issue is probably the leading problem with recruiting women into the military. I have women reaching out to me constantly who want to talk to me because they're considering a career in the military. And I love talking to them, but they're terrified because based on what they hear from the media, they believe that they are signing up to be sexually assaulted. And there is a rampant problem in the military having to do with sexual assault. There is also a rampant problem in colleges and universities and in broader American society having to do with that. But I've heard the military cite that too many times when we pride ourselves on being better disciplined and a, you know, a different segment of society that behaves according to different rules. But for some reason, we haven't been able to, to deal with this one. And to answer what I think the follow-up question is, I do think this is a major cultural issue in the military and one that they've had many, many, you know, operational planning teams and tiger teams to address because they want to do a surgical strike on the milita- on sexual assault in the military without dealing with broader issues of respect and inclusion of women in the service. They want to deal with it while also acknowledging during sexual assault trainings that I've been a part of that you know, drunken hookups are going to happen. So here's how we're going to deal with it. And, you know, sort of condoning some boys will be boys type behavior, but then trying to draw the line at criminality, which I understand why that has been the approach. But I frankly think a lot more could be done in the military to respect women, fully include women, to regard that battle buddy standing next to you as an equivalent battle buddy, they were male or female. We don't have that environment yet. And unless you get real commitment from leadership, not to handle the problem of sexual assault, but to handle the problem of gender inclusion, then I don't know that we're going to get there. Mo, Amanda? First of all, we need to remember that sexual assault is not just a female issue, meaning it's not just females who are sexually assaulted. And it's not just males who are the perpetrators. So just want to make sure that we're not looking at just as a female issue because There are other incidents out there happening that are just as bad. And I think part of the reason, Lindsay, you kind of touched on that about we're held to a different standard. But for me, the sexual assault thing, it's the worst kind of friendly fire because we have this battle buddy, you know, you're in the foxhole together. It's a it's a violation of trust, no matter what gender does it to what gender. It's a violation of that trust. But the other thing that was really eye opening for me was I was at a country concert with my much younger nieces. And I was watching these young people who were just about the age of people who would be enlisting into the military. And they're like drunken hookups, people getting drunk and, and just this massive growth fest. And I'm thinking it's it's happening before we even inherit that into the military. And so it's got to start even before that whole just 
mutual respect. It's not respect for women or respect for men. It's respect for each other as just human beings. And you just don't do that to people. You don't take advantage of them. And again, it's that violation of trust and that, that friendly fire violation that, that I think is why it so affects the military because it affects everything that we do because we rely on each other so much more so than a white collar or blue collar job. We just, we put our lives in each other's hands in order for the greater good. So those are just a couple random points. I just, uh, I'll let somebody else connect those together, but those are just random thoughts in my head. Amanda? I absolutely agree that mutual respect is, is really the key. When I was a student in flight school, um, sometimes you have to do flights and we call them cross countries and you stay overnight somewhere and then you fly back the next day. And by doing this, you, you knock out more flights in your training. And I was always thinking, nervous, worried about what instructor I was going to get paired up with if I had to do that because I really had to be on my guard. I kind of knew, you knew these reputations. I knew the way these instructors talked to me. You know, in, in a class of 20, I was the only female and I was always on my guard. But once I got to my squadron, my first squadron and, you know, 28 officers, two females. And when I got there, they were like my big brothers. And maybe, maybe that's not exactly, you know, what we're looking for, but I was one of them. They accepted me. You know, I, I, if I did my job, that was all they cared about. And they weren't going to let anybody touch me. Should we have to have that? No, right? So it was awesome for me and my squadron to have that kind of support from the other officers, but it would be nice where you don't need that protection, where you can be on a ship with 5,000 people and not worry about this anymore. Somehow we have to get there, and, and I absolutely agree, it's, it's about mutual respect. Well, I could talk to you guys all day about so many issues, but we're coming to the close of our time. And I want to get on a question because we are now marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I, if my math is right, each of you served in the aftermath of, of 9-11. And I want to ask you, what things do you think the military has learned in that in the ensuing 20 years? And how would you like things for the next generation of officers to change? Amanda, you want to kick it off? Well, you know, I, I think, as we said, you know, just recognize people for what they do, what they contribute. You know, um, we've, we've talked about this inclusiveness and, you know, just level the playing field where it's about what you do. I think the military is on a path towards that, but we need to keep keep working and just recognizing, you know, people for what they contribute to the fight. Mm -hmm. Lindsay? Yeah, I would say that the past 20 years have seen a lot of reforms in terms of the American labor economy. We're going through this right now with COVID where people are reimagining what work looks like. And for a long time, when, when folks have highlighted to the Department of Defense the need to be more inclusive when it comes to gender or diversity, there's been a little bit of pushback where the response is often, we're making our numbers. There's no problem in terms of sort of the overall end strength of the military and whether we can make our numbers. We have the greatest fighting force in the world. Are you proposing solutions in search of a problem, right? Is there really a quote, diversity problem in the military because the numbers don't necessarily look representative of the United States? Is that is that the goal for the military or do we just want an effective fighting force? And I fear that given 
our labor economy and where things are going that we really need to be thinking more about diversity because this this generation now, the generation that is 20 years old now and therefore entering the workforce but was never alive in a pre-9-11 work environment, has very different expectations about what they want their working life to look like and what they think is acceptable. And I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic that that might actually prompt some movement within the military that some of the folks who weren't super convinced that diversity or better gender inclusion was as imperative as I obviously believe it is. I'm hopeful that we might be able to make some strides because of how long we've been fighting this fight. Mm -hmm. Mo? A lot of lessons we learn either in our deployments right after 9-11 or in the, the decades since that. But to me, the biggest thing is that everybody who is part of a team, there are lots of stories that are just positive works being done by teams that are integrated making sacrifices for, for bigger accomplishments, bigger than their team. Um, and so my, my biggest takeaway is really that we need to share our stories, whether they happened in a desolate combat environment or in a Pentagon cube farm. You know, We all have these stories and these experiences. We need to kind of examine them and, and collect them, but then we need to share them. And I think that's how you, you show the, the, a bigger picture of what the military is and how we're treated and all the positives of that. I mean, there's some negative stuff. I, I, I get that. But again, I focus on what makes us different as a service, and it's we all of us serve under this American flag, not a gay pride flag or an LGBTQ flag or a white male flag. So the military members are this mosaic of national defense. And so if we are able to be willing to lay down our lives in defense of our constitution, we should certainly be able to rise above what makes us different individually and then celebrate the professionalism that we all have in common because we all have it there. That's that's what our propensity to serve is, to serve something and be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We just get caught up in these little differences every once in a while. And I think it's just important to focus on what we've done well as a team and with mutual respect and share those stories because we all have them. We all have good stories that need to kind of just outweigh all the negative stuff that's in there. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Mo Barrett, Lindsay Rodman, Amanda Stahlschmidt, thank you so much for being here with me on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. And I don't know how you feel about people saying this, but thank you for your service. Thank you, Beverly. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.